When it comes to building healthy soils, there's no one simple solution. It's often a collection of several practices stacked on top of each other that builds a system that can ultimately produce results. Between the no-till practices, the cover crop, the terraces, we've actually greatly minimized some of our nutrient runoff concerns and our erosion concerns. So you kind of have to keep stacking all those things together. It's not one particular practice that, that makes a significant change. It's the whole system. And we've seen that through the course of time, through stacking all those together, we're actually seeing some improvement in some of our land. Fifth generation farmer Ryan Britt talks about some of those practices he's stacked on top of each other and the results he's seeing in north central Missouri. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hamrich. Joining me, of course, is our co-host, Dr. Abby Wick, and we're sitting down today with Missouri farmer Ryan Britt. Ryan's been a full-time farmer of soybeans, corn, and wheat alongside his father ever since returning after college about 23 years ago. They also raise cattle for both a local butcher beef business and for packers on the grid. Ryan's become very involved in volunteer leadership positions in the industry, including his current role as executive board member for the National Association of Conservation Districts, where he represents the North Central region. He's also the immediate past president of the Missouri Association of Soil and Water Conservation Districts and a former Randolph County Farm Bureau president, among other service positions. He says these roles have not only been fulfilling, but also have exposed him to how other farms operate and give Given him countless lessons that he's been able to bring back to his farm. Today, we're going to talk about some of those lessons and the journey Ryan and his father have been on to transition their farm to no-till, add more cover crops, plant green, and incorporate the livestock into their row crop operation. We also talk about the various incentive programs that Ryan's been able to take advantage of and how their soil health practices set them up for the drought conditions they're currently experiencing. First, though, I asked Ryan if he could tell us just a little bit more about his farm and his family's commitment to soil conservation. My father and my grandfather always encouraged me to try to improve things, to try to leave it better than you found it. And we saw that in our operation personally, and that, you know, we just, we weren't happy with how our tillage operation would work. We would try one piece of equipment and that's still, you know, it would work in some places, but not in some places. And depending on the year with farming, every year is different, depending on the rainfall and, and the climate that we're working with, um, what system is the best. And you could just see over time, we really weren't gaining. We just didn't seem like we were we were making things any better. And so then we started looking at no-till and, and some of the conservation practices that we could do. And he said, hey, you know, these are things that have lasting impacts. And instead of just uh, how do we get the funds to pay the bills for this year, it's okay, I'm investing in things that my kids are going to see the benefit from. And I think ultimately most farmers, 
you know, we want to leave it better than we found it. You know, farmers inherently are conservationists because we depend on that land for our livelihood. But most farmers also are looking long term for sustainability and for something to be sustainable it has to be profitable. <laughs> and sometimes that gets left out. But we have to make sure that we're leaving the land to where it is able to produce at or a better than what it was when we started trying to produce from it. And that message, for some reason, stuck in my little brain. And as I got to seeing the different things that actually had lasting impacts, conservation and specifically soil and water programs are one of those things that I felt like was a great investment. And I feel like we're able to continue. And it's something that I, I feel like my kids will be able to be proud of, or at least get some of the benefits from. And what has that, what's that journey look like for your family as far as, you know, for, for soil health specifically, you know, uh, what types of either practices or, or equipment ha have you all uh, adopted to try to improve uh, your soil? Our operation has changed quite a bit over the years. In our row crop operation, when I first came home from college, we were still plowing and then we would work the ground multiple times, you know, two or three times with a field cultivator and then maybe a cultipacker to actually fix all the damage that we did, you know, so we could drag a planter across it. And then depending on the rain, you know, we may even have to run a, a harrow over the field or something to get the crop up. And so from that point, we have gone to where we are 100% no-till. In fact, we try to plant everything green. So we, we plant a cover crop on every acre today. We use planting green as one of our ways to help manage weeds, but also to help get better populations or stands in our crops. Then we will use the, the cover crop to, over a long term, increase our soil health. You know, when we're looking at soil health, we've actually seen some of our soil health numbers get up a little bit. You know, some organic matter, active carbon numbers. We're, we're finding some of those things that, that change very slowly, but have big impacts. And then we've even carried that into our cattle operation. Our cattle used to be one of those things that it was always on the back burner. You put them out in the pasture and then, you know, once a year you go back in and pull the calves back off and say, hey, I need some more bulls. So, we'll put, you know, and, and today um, everything is getting rotated. We have used a lot of conservation practices to get both things there. Um, in our cattle operation, we use some equip grants to instill cross fencing and waters into where we're able to divide up into a lot of paddocks and, and actually get cattle off of acres for an extended period of time, let those um, acres recover some and get the soil health going, get the grass to where it actually can build some roots and do some good things. I'm kind of bouncing back and forth here, but going on the row crop side, you know, we've got a lot of terraces, we've got a lot of ponds, we've um, got waterways, we've used cost share funding from both EQIP and our state cost share for uh, cover crops. Some of those things we did on our own anyway, because you, you can't ever get the funding for everything that you want to do. But when you do get the funding, a lot of times it is an incentive or it kind of helps you get comfortable in trying something. And we've used that to give us confidence and then to go into major way into some of our land. So basically all of our hills that we're farming that are on land that we own basically have terraces on them. 
it have a cover crop on them. And so we see very little erosion. I'm not going to say, you know, when you get these major rain events, we'll still have some things that we have to fix. But between the no-till practices, the cover crop, the terraces, we've actually greatly minimized some of our nutrient runoff concerns and our erosion concerns. So you kind of have to keep stacking all those things together. It's not one particular practice that, that makes a significant change. It's the whole system. And we've seen that through the course of time, through stacking all those together, we're actually seeing some improvement in some of our land. How important have the livestock been maybe in your courage to adopt this on so many acres, having kind of that cleanup crew, but um, you know, how important have they been for your process? I think the livestock have probably given me the confidence to try some of the things knowing that, hey, worst case scenario, we've got some forage here and we're going to bail it off and, and we'll, <laughs> we'll have some a, a revenue source here for at least um, supporting the row crop side. But ultimately, the livestock is something in my future goals that I want to get incorporated even more. Unfortunately, through the years, most of the fences on the row crop side have kind of disappeared as you've cleaned out brush rows. And, and that's not uncommon across the Midwest. Is, you know, you used to drive around and you'd see fences everywhere and you'd have good habitat for quail and all those things. And I won't go down that path, but I will say that the result is today, I'm looking at putting fences back around some of our fields so that we can incorporate the livestock even more. I think that the livestock actually did give us the confidence to start some of those cover crop things, knowing that the cover crop did provide that forage source. But uh, I don't think we fully utilized what is possible there. And I think that's really the next step for a lot of people is how we can bring those livestock back in and, and maybe even mimic some of the um, things that were going on in our uh, land before people did too much messing with it. That's great. I, I, uh, I, I wanted to ask about the livestock as well. I'm curious, just on that note, for others that feel like they are further along in their soil health journey, but they just have not made that next step to incorporate livestock because they don't see themselves as, you know, a rancher or a livestock person. What advice or what, what would be your message to them who, who think like, boy, to really get to the next level of soil health, I think I really need, you know, to integrate animals in some capacity. What, what would you tell them? Well, first off, they just got to try it and probably try it at a little smaller scale. I'm, I'm guilty and my father reminds me often that I, I don't do things on a small scale very well. I tend to kind of go whole, <laughs> all in or not. But, but I guess the other thing that really they should be aware of, and I know Missouri for sure, and I know there are all kinds of cost shares around the country, but there are many opportunities to actually get some incentive funding, cost share funding to bring those cattle back in. You know, one particular example in Missouri is through the University of Missouri Regenerative Ag Center. They have a grant for funding that would actually pay you to bring the cattle. First off, there's an opportunity for them to cost share on the cover crop, or if you've already done a cover crop, because this has to be a first time payment deal. If you just want to bring cattle into an operation or any livestock into an operation that has not previously had that on those acres, there's actually funding to help pay for some of the cost of doing that. And we can get into the details of all that another time, but I, I just want to encourage people to ask questions, you know, go to your either soil and water district or the university 
now is the perfect time to try those things. There are all kinds of resources available, and every situation is different. When I talk to other people about our operation, I say, hey, this is not necessarily for you. This is what works for us. But if you take something from our operation, it's please try something. Try to figure out why you're having a trouble in this particular part of your field that, you know, maybe there's another opportunity there that maybe we're not making the you know best use of the land. And I think that bringing livestock back into these operations are going to help many things, but soil health, possibly revenue, the limiting factor is usually management. And I understand, especially with more seasoned generations, that uh, we've been doing things a certain way and it it works for the most part. So we try not to change. And I get that. When it's not broken, don't fix it. But uh, we're also not improving or getting any better. And that's the hard thing is that sometimes we have to try things a little different and we have to look at things outside the box. Those are all cliches that, you know, hey, they don't really mean anything to some people. But when you bring those in, you actually can, um, change up that monoculture and and I don't need to tell a soil science anything about that but then we can get excited and we can we can actually see some things that are happening underground that hey over the long term we're going to see some real benefit from and we're actually seeing some of that right now we're in a drought part of our farm is in a real severe drought and we are seeing that you know the crops are actually looking better than they should for no more rain than they've gotten and, you know, our pastures have held out a little longer than some of those on the other side of the fence because we were able to rotate those cattle around. And I, I know that as we try to bring these different practices into your operation, that it's going to be uncomfortable. But if we'll just take the courage to make those steps and, and try those new things, I think you'll see some benefits. They, they won't all work. And first off, I'll tell you is just don't be afraid to fail because it's going to happen. And and we saw that for, with cover crops alone for a long time, the first couple of years. Uh, I think the first year I, I tried to put cover crops on almost every acre was 2011 going into 2012 with a drought. And obviously that didn't work too good. So you have to kind of really be willing to to fail. But then when you fail, don't give up and know that maybe if we tweak this a little bit or just understand that none of the things that we do are going to work 100 percent of the time and recognize that, you know, a couple years out of 10, it's probably not going to be great. So if we have to try it a few times before we totally give up. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the, the planting green. It sounds like you do quite a bit of that. You know, given the conditions that you've had this year with the drought and you've probably had some wet springs, what, what's your recommendation for people getting into that practice as far as management tools for termination, but then also maybe, you know, the next crops going into that when you're planting green? I absolutely agree with planting green. I feel like I see a huge benefit from doing so, especially in a wet year. And the opposite is that in a dry year, I think we can have some challenges planting green that we can actually have some problems. And that's been pointed out by a few people this year. But in a wet year and an average year, I feel like there's a huge advantage in that we can actually get into those fields a little quicker than some of the people that are not having an active growing crop out there. They're, we're actually absorbing some of that moisture. We actually get better stands at times and a lot of times. The the challenge to planting green is we have to be set up for it. So we need to make sure that we've got planters that have the ability to put a lot of downforce down at times. I, I recommend a hydraulic downforce system. You know, just little things like that. I 
you can go one of two ways. I, I like row cleaners, some people don't. You can plant without row cleaners. The one thing I don't do is I don't run a no-till culture in front. That's the one way I found that it doesn't work, but that's just on my operation on my soils. The interesting thing about my soils, which is, is a Missouri thing, you know, some of the other states, they, they certainly don't have uh, maybe some of the variability that we do, but in our river bottoms, we have everything from a real tight clay to a sand to a really nice loam and everything in between in the same pass and then back again in that same pass and so it's really hard to set up a piece of equipment to be absolutely perfect for each situation that's where investing some money into our planning equipment with that variability of that hydraulic downforce those those row cleaners where we can adjust them on the fly we put a lot of fertility on with the planter on our corn and have seen some really good responses from that too and i think that's probably one of those must-haves for planting into a green cover if you want to be a successful in corn. Soybeans are actually pretty easy. And I say that next year, we won't have a great crop at all. But my experience is generally, it's pretty easy to, to no-till soybeans into a green cover. But but corn's a little more challenging. We need to be prepared for it fertility-wise and, and have the ability to get that there when we need it. But I, I honestly feel like we have better success because of that, um, because of that growing cover there than we did when we were trying to do a conventional tillage system. We're more consistent. As far as terminating that cover, there's different schools of thought and dad and I sometimes differ a little bit. It depends on your mission or what you're really trying to accomplish out of that cover. If you're trying to get any kind of weed control with that cover, we're going to have to let it get a little bigger. So we got some mulch out there. If you're really just wanting to um, get some roots to have some erosion resilience and, and to just build up our soil health just a little bit, we may terminate it a lot earlier. And, you know, maybe as soon as we plant or the day that we plant sometimes. And so every situation is different. It depends on what we're trying to accomplish in that field. That's great. And I, I it, with the cover crops, you know, I always like to ask whenever I hear what you said, which is, in the early years, it, it did not go well. <laughs> like what, what kept you convinced that that was the right thing to do? Cause a lot of people might say, Oh, it doesn't work in my area or it's not going to work on my farm. It's great for other people, but not me because I tried it and it didn't work. Why didn't you go that route? Well, my mother would tell you it's because I'm stubborn and she's probably right. But I think ultimately it's because I, I had some confidence from seeing it work in other places. And I think that's, been the benefit of being involved in some of these organizations where I've seen a, a little bigger picture, maybe outside of my local area, and say that, hey, they're doing something, and, and even though it may not be exactly what fits us, maybe we need to keep trying until we do find what fits us. And I think that that's probably a good general rule for all things soil health is that we're going to have to keep trying and keep tweaking. And, you know, we do a lot of nitrogen management back uh, nearly 20 years ago. We, we started doing nitrogen management in season when, when a lot of people weren't doing it. And every year, I think, since then, we do it a little bit different. And it's not that what we're doing is that bad. It's that we just keep trying to make it a little better. And as the technology changes, you know, there's options that weren't available before and that we're able to take advantage of. But also genetics are different today. 
but our soil is changing some too. And hopefully for the better, for the most part, for the better. And as we're able to take advantage of the soil health changing, we may find that we don't need as much nitrogen at certain times as we do at other times. And so we may actually change our form of nitrogen that we're using. And honestly, I need to also credit a lot of that resilience in both um, our cover crop operation, but our nitrogen operation to working with a crop advisor that um, I have a lot of confidence in. And he gets me into some trouble sometimes, but he also gives me ideas and, and, and gives me that confidence to keep trying and, and keep making it better. And I think that sometimes we do things the most difficult way that you can possibly do it. But I do see that we're doing things in a way that we're trying to be as resourceful as possible with our nutrients and our money. Um, as we can make both of those as efficient as possible, that benefits not only my pocketbook, but also, you know, any runoff concerns, any erosion concerns for my neighbor, for that water supply that's, you know, as we're on the Missouri River, I'm quite cognizant of where that Missouri River ends up at. And I don't want to send nutrients that I've paid for all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And you're talking about a topic very near and dear to my heart, this relationship with your, your crop advisor. And so I'm curious as to the learning process that happens there. Who's, who's bringing what information? And do you guys keep each other in check with the, with the crazy ideas? Or do you stay pretty even keel when you look at adopting something new? The problem is, is that we're both pretty willing to, to change and try things differently. And we're both involved, um, both nationally levels to where we we kind of see the different things that are coming down and and I have a lot of respect for him because I'll just go ahead and say Jason Young is my crop advisor he's a personal friend of mine and and so he gives me the confidence to try those things he gets some of those ideas through working through the channels that he works through but then I bring ideas to him and between the two of us uh, we can certainly get ourselves in trouble but he is excellent at working with his partners in the area but his partners nationally as you're saying the other crop advisors and then when I was at the University of Missouri I worked for the USDA Ag Research Service and that kind of instilled in me a little bit of the the practices of trying to test things and being able to measure our results, I guess, technically. And the problem with that was I brought it all home. Dad tells the story and he's he's not wrong. I didn't want to go to college. I just wanted, I, I knew from the time that I was six years old, I was going to farm. That was what I always wanted to do. I didn't see any need to go to college, but so they made me go to college and, and they weren't necessarily wrong in that. But the problem is I brought home everything from college. And so he calls our farm now the University North because because every field has some kind of plot or trial or something in it. So Jason, my crop advisor, works with me and making sure that we're measuring and, and that those trials have significant reason to do. And, so, you know, sometimes we learn things from the ones that were unexpected, and, and those are some of our best ones. But that's usually a mistake where I forgot to turn something on or I put too much of something in. But we have continued to find ways to improve what we're doing just by using different options or, or finding something that is different from what we were doing before. Oh, so now you mentioned another part of your background that maybe we need to dive into this work at the Agricultural Research Service. <laughs> what were you doing there? 
Uh, I was just a, a lowly technician that was spending a lot of time collecting water samples and drying them out. But we also, the really cool thing about that job was that was back when yield monitors were pretty new and we were testing equipment and, and helping develop equipment that ended up being part of the everyday stuff that we use today in both planters and combines. And I, I really enjoyed that that opportunity. I'm actually still um, participating on the steering committee for the USDA Ag Research Service for our local area now. But that process really got me excited and looking at the things that are changing or improving, but, you know, realizing that, hey, maybe we're just missing this piece of technology, that if we could just measure this, or if this machine would just automatically do something that I don't have time, or I'm just not gonna take the time to go out and adjust, that man, that, that, that could make the difference. And then maybe I would be able to handle some of that flexibility across the different soil types. But that opportunity helped bring me to where our operation is today. And are there any examples of that right now that you're thinking, if I could just kind of solve for this little thing, or if I could just, you know, fix this, it would really make a big difference in my system. Anything you're either thinking about or experimenting with today? Well, since you mentioned that, <laughs> I did tell you that we're in a drought. And so water is, is a precious resource that we're very limited on right now. And so we're considering or trying to figure out what would irrigation look like in our operation. That is not real common in North Central Missouri. Basically everything in our area is from surface water. And so there would have to be some real efficiency to how we could get that done. And so, you know, we're looking at whether you should do some kind of drip tape or, you know, what are the different steps for us? You know, there are many, many different new technologies coming down the pike. Um, I think that we need to definitely test them at farm scale before we spend that type of money. That is probably something that we would be trying to figure out is is how it fits and, you know, how much can we do of some of our, our fertility through that or is it just going to be a water deal? And, you know, ultimately, I would love to integrate that in with our cattle operation and our feeding operation. If you're not doing the tape, maybe we're doing something that is actually pumping out of a barn and we're applying. I don't know. But those are the type of things that we're looking at that I think will be a major investment. So we need to have a lot of confidence before we spend that type of money. But I think that we would probably see a long-term benefit in that. Well, I, as we kind of wrap up here, I always like to ask, you know, if you think about the audience of, of farmers that are in varying degrees of their soil health journey. Maybe somebody hasn't tried any of this stuff and they're thinking about it for the first time. Others that have been doing it for decades, you know, what, what would be your message to them? If you could kind of give your own little Ted talk to that audience, uh, what, what would you want them to take away? First off, I would have to tell everyone to not be satisfied. Just continue to find something that can make it better. When you're first starting, you're going to have to keep it simple. You know, and if you've not had any experience with cover crops, you need to start with something that is low management, that doesn't require a lot of change. So maybe that's putting cereal rye in front of soybeans. That's 
pretty easy to do, you know, if you're comfortable. You don't have to plant it green, you know, the first year. If you're not comfortable with that, kill it when it gets, you know, six, eight inches tall. I don't care, but you got to start somewhere. And then after you do get established with something, keep looking to make it better. And, you know, whether that's, I'm okay, I'm, I'm real comfortable with our cover crop mix. What would a 20 species mix look like? You know, or in our cattle operation, um, just leaving one of those premier operations up in North Dakota, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged to try some winter grazing and, and figuring out, you know, what species of cover crops could I stockpile and where I don't have to feed any hay during the winter. Uh, those are the type of things that I'm looking to improve on. And that's, there's a lot of people out there that have much much better operations than ours and that are way further along in a soil health journey than I am. But I think that the common thing between me and them is that we want to continue to make it better. We want to make sure that we're not afraid to take the next step. Always learning a common theme indeed from the many farmers that we get to feature here on this show. Wow, what a fun interview. Thank you so much to Ryan Britt for taking the time for this episode. Coincidentally, he was traveling for one of the many boards he serves on the day that we chatted. So appreciate him making time and certainly a great example of someone doing interesting work for soil and water conservation, both at home and throughout the country. Thanks again to Ryan. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series of the Soil Sense podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayuette, and myself, with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you subscribe to and follow this show on your favorite podcast app. And go ahead and leave us a rating and review if you would while you're there. Also, be sure to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website at farmersforsoilhealth.com. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating, and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.